Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio and the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. We're going to be talking today about the opioid ep- epidemic. The uh, America's in the midst of such an epidemic, and the Hoosier State seems to be right in the middle of it, kind of on the front lines. Uh, the city of Bloomington and Mayor John Hamilton's administration recently has been criticized because of some information that was published online in, the, in an attempt to publish a lot of information about and a lot of data about the opioid epidemic because uh, information is a good thing. They published a map of overdose locations, but that drew a lot of criticism because of uh, the uh, some privacy issues. The city has apologized and explained its intent was just to show the scale of the epidemic. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the uh, stigma of addiction, and we'll talk about you know the use of, of data and whatever else you want to talk about here on Noon Edition today. We have three guests with us in the studio. Chris Abert is the director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, and he's also co-chair of Monroe County, the Monroe County Opioid Commission, or Task Force, rather. And uh, Beverly Callender Anderson is here. She's director of the Community and Family Resources for the city of Bloomington, and she also uh, was a member of the Safety, Civility, and Justice Task Force and is a member of the Monroe County Opioid Task Force. And also, Christy Thrasher is here. She's a resident of Bloomington, is a certified harm reduction specialist, a naloxone trainer, the coordinator of the CARES Harm Reduction Clinic at the Jackson County Health Department, and she is a relative of an overdose victim. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition, and today you can find us on Facebook Live as well. So thank you, everybody, for for being here. Uh, We have some clips from Mayor John Hamilton, who couldn't join us today. Uh, He was on the Ask the Mayor program earlier this week, and we're going to play one of those clips uh, here in just just a minute, if we're ready in the studio, yeah, we're not quite ready. So let me let me. Yeah, we're ready now. So let's go with that first clip from Mayor John Hamilton. That's all public data, but it had never really been mapped before. And this group, over the months months ago, put that map out and said, "Well, we learned some things. We learned that deaths are happening all over the community. They're not happening in a concentrated place. They're happening." not in public, but they're happening behind closed doors in residences and businesses. But we also learned uh, just last week, after this data was up for many months, that the the addresses of individual deaths was a very sensitive information. And that seems obvious now. Uh, It is, of course. That was Mayor John Hamilton talking about this issue of the data. Now, Beverly Callender Anderson is our representative from the city today. I know, Beverly, you're not the data expert for That's the city. Right. Um, so I, I think you may have a, at least a little bit to tell us yeah. about this. Mm-hmm. So um, as Mayor Hamilton said, you know, we put the information up as a way of, and, and, and along with about 140 other data sets, um, as a way to give people who are trying to help the situation the information that they need. Um, when it came to our attention, I think the information went up in March when it came to our attention that what we were trying to do to be helpful uh, caused more pain and more harm than we we tried to take it down. I mean, we did take it down. Um, there was an error in one of the in um, in taking it down. Then other information went up that had not been originally up. But the mayor has apologized for that. We we are sorry. It was not our intent, um, you know, to cause harm or to perpetuate stigma. I mean, far 
far from that. Um, uh, we were just looking to provide information to healthcare professionals, to you know other people that were were doing this kind of research. And so um, you're right; I'm not the data expert, and so I was not involved in actually putting up the web page. But um, you know, we we did take it down and and do apologize for any any harm that that was caused. Was the 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 data, as, as I understand it, was um, collecting and gathering information was part of the recommendations from the task force you were on. So one of the one of the um, recommendations from the safe. Safety, Civility, and Justice Task Force was to provide information. Um, some of it was information about services and resources. Some of it was research and best practices. Um, and so those kinds of things. So it, so it did come, it flowed out of that because this has been, this initiative has gone on since August of 16. Um, and so as it has moved on, that was, um, that was just one of about 28 recommendations that came out. Okay. Yeah. Chris, um what was your reaction when you first learned that this data was up? I was saddened was my initial reaction uh, and then frustrated and then maybe a little bit angry. Uh, and, and the reason isn't because I think there are any bad actors. I don't assume that the city had any bad intentions of releasing this information. Uh, I just think it's a lack of understanding about the stigma and the trauma and the criminalization of people who are using drugs, particular people who are in chaotic drug use or, or could be diagnosed with severe substance use disorder. Um, it immediately brought to mind other situations where we would never list that information. Um, so I think oftentimes about survivors of sexual assault uh, and the idea that we would somehow empower them or end the stigma against uh, sexual assault by publishing their names. Uh, or where those uh, attacks happened. We just wouldn't think to ever do that, uh, and on and on and on. But somehow drug users are put in a separate category, uh, and I don't think that that's anybody's fault. I think we have 150 years of racialized policies that have made us look at people who use drugs as uh, as villains, as others, as dangerous. Um, and, and so the, they're treated different, and their information isn't treated uh, with the same care and dignity and respect that we would treat these other vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. I think the frustration came because since 2016, we've really been pushing for the idea of nothing about us without us, and that when these policies are instituted or even discussed, that people should be sitting at the table, and not just in preliminary uh, discussions, but also uh, in the actual task force that – So at the Indiana Recovery Alliance, we make sure that 51% of our board of directors are active participants. And that way, uh, not only are their voices heard, but if their voices are not heard, uh, they actually have the power to do something about it and make sure that that doesn't happen again. And we suggest uh, that other policymakers and institutions institute something similar, maybe not quite as much as their board of directors being in total control, but something similar so that it isn't just a tokenizing effort. Uh, to involve people and have their voices heard because any person who's experienced um, losing a loved one, uh, again, with the shame and the stigma and the trauma attached to it, uh, would would most certainly not have uh, vetted this information being made public. Mm-hmm. So, Christy, I want to ask you, when did you, I know you were related to someone who was it was included on this map. When did you find out that, that the map was up? Because been- My loved one isn't on the map. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> okay. But he did die of an accidental drug poisoning in Monroe County and in the city limits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, can you can you just talk about sort of from um, someone who has experienced that, kind of what, what goes through your head when you see the, the data displayed like this on a map? Well, of course, I think it's disrespectful and... Um, I don't think that someone else can make a decision about whether or not you're going to come out, because it is like coming out of the closet as a family member. To identify yourself strongly with a stigmatized population, then you will experience associative stigma. It's a given. So many families choose not to, and I don't think that it was respectful of those families not to consult with them if you're going to out them, essentially, that the city... I would like to see the city redefine who they think is a stakeholder. Centerstone, law enforcement, whoever else they met with after there had been pushback, they said they met with stakeholders, but they didn't invite the people whose addresses were on the map 
those were the stakeholders. The directly impacted people were the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So, Beverly, in, in uh, looking at this and in, in going forward, from your history with the Safe and Civil City, uh, and you know you're, you've been with the city for a, a long time. Right. And what, what are the what are the overall goals? Do you feel for you know for going forward and, and trying to maybe um, um, create some, some you know build back mm-hmm. respect and, and trust? Um, so just from some conversations that um, we had earlier prior to, to starting, I I think that. Um, the respect is there between you know Chris and I, and and, and I'm just I'm just meeting Christy, so um, hopefully the respect <laughs> is there. Um, and so you know I think working together, I, you know we've we've got to work together. This the the substance use disorder issue is a community wide issue. We've got to work together to move forward as a community. Um, and I think listening. I mean I think this is, was an opportunity for us to listen. So hopefully we will do some things on the front end as opposed to the back end in the future. Um, I do have a statement from the city, however, that I, I wanted to read sure. because I think it's important that even though I said we apologize, this is like the official statement. Um, The city of Bloomington has removed the locations of overdose fatalities from its website, Bloomington Revealed. The site was developed in 2017 to follow up on a recommendation from the Safety, Civility, and Justice Task Force to aggregate and present information to help the public, public safety, and health workers understand issues relating to homelessness and substance use disorder in our community. Concerns raised over the last two weeks by some families of those who had died of overdose and by some social service providers prompted the city to reconsider the content of this data set and remove the addresses. Mayor John Hamilton extends his apologies to those suffering whose suffering was increased by the publication of this information. The lead developer of the Bloomington Reveal site was Tom Miller, Director of Innovation in the Office of the Mayor, who has been out of the state dealing with a serious health issue for the past three weeks. Since Tom created the site and provided the expertise on data analytics, the city considers that it would be more productive to schedule a discussion about the use of public data at the city portal upon his return. So... One, just wanted to say, you know, again, that that we are sorry that that was not the intent. But I do think moving forward, you know, just continuing to work together, there are a lot of us that work with the county, you know, and the county is our public health, um, responsible for our public health entity. We work as a partner with the county. We want to make things, we want to enhance what people that work with Indiana Recovery Alliance, the county health department, Centerstone, whoever else, whoever the other people that are involved in this are doing. So it's not our intention to make it harder. It's our intention to enhance what you do. We have a, we have a second clip from uh, Mayor John Hamilton from his Ask the Mayor program this week. And it kind of addresses this issue about, you know, why the decision was made to, to take it down and, and his, his strong viewpoint on that. The two things that mattered, I think, in this decision and mattered to me were, one, we knew there was pain and difficulty and people going through revisiting things they didn't want to have to revisit. That was the first thing. Uh, And the second thing was this whole controversy was distracting us. The energy we need to bring is how to fix this problem. The energy is how do we address, reduce the harm, respond to this. And this energy of fighting about what's the right level of information was just distracting everybody. I want to ask you, you, Chris, that was Mayor Hamilton talking, but um, what do you feel is appropriate uh, appropriate data to use and display, and what are sort of our best practices in terms of doing this in order to, to learn about the scale of the epidemic, but also be mindful of the stigma? Uh, so, I, I, you know, I think just extending the same courtesy uh, and respect that we would, again, to other stigmatized and, and traumatizing events in people's lives would be a good start. Um, there were other ways to display the information, uh, such as a heat map or graphs or a simple statement saying that this epidemic uh, reaches into all socioeconomic uh, classes right throughout our community. Uh, I also think there was a lost opportunity in that to talk about the 150 years of racialized drug policies that have pushed us to this point. So, so even putting it out there that this is affecting, you know, suburb, rural and suburban uh, white communities, affecting white posterity, and not mentioning the fact that, you know, indigenous, Latino, and African-American communities have been decimated by this shows 
a lack of nuance, I guess, in the understanding of the current epidemic that we're in. So I feel like not only was it an, an unfortunate breach of ethics, uh, but then it was also um, it didn't talk about the whole story when the opportunity was available. So, so I will say, I mean, just to that is that there weren't conclusions. I mean, the the website itself didn't reach conclusions. It it just presented the data. So, where I totally agree with what you just said, um, that w- wasn't the purpose of the of the site. I think to reach those kinds of conclusions, but to just to present the information. There was another instance on the website uh, where they talked about the people who had overdosed and mentioned how many of them had criminal records. Uh, and we actually did reach out about that uh, previously, and it was slightly altered. Uh, and there were no conclusions drawn, but we need you can't we can't just put data sensitive data like this out there without contextualizing it because it lets the people who read it come to their own conclusions. And this is why it's really important when academics are working with this type data that they have internal review boards that can actually help to them to identify uh, the ways uh, that we expose vulnerable populations so we can make sure that this doesn't happen. So if you would have read the the sentence uh, prior to some amount of clarification, it looked like they were saying that people who overdosed were criminals, right? And there was no conclusion drawn. Now, the conclusion should be drawn we believe, that the criminal justice system was involved, and yet these people still slipped through and, and suffered fatal overdose. Uh, and, and that conclusion, which I, again, believe is the right one, is something we can work on, mm-hmm. and we can find out uh, new avenues outside of the criminal justice system to deal with these social issues and these public health issues. Mm-hmm. Let me give our phone numbers again in case people want to join us on the program. 812-855-0811-1877-285-9348. News at indianapublicmedia.org is a place where you can also send us your questions, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, you know, I hope that we're, we're going to be able to, to use this program today to help educate people about, um, some, about this issue, which is, has sort of burst upon the scene in the last few years for the, the great – uh, for the big, the uh, overwhelming populace, Chris, you've been working on it for quite some time, and you know you've been in the trenches, and and uh, so have you. So, um, well, what you know, so I'm just thinking about some of the the messages today. What one of the things that we we've heard from, I think, both of you is that the the people who whose addresses appeared should have been you know involved in the decision making process. I, I can just you know I, I can point to other. Um, you know, a, a large story we did in the newspaper. There were about eleven people who had lost somebody to the an, an overdose uh, heroin or opioid epidemic, who wanted to talk and tell the story about about their family member. So it's not. I mean, I, I think people are trying to break through the stigma. Correct. So I guess, Chris, I just want to get a reaction about you know. Yes, there is a stigma for this. How do we overcome? the idea that there's a stigma for people who get involved in... I'd actually like to say something. I think that one of the things that we could do is when family members do decide to be brave and speak up, that you hear them, Mm -hmm. that you listen to them. I think that if at any time the city had issued the apology that Beverly just gave us today, this would have stopped then. Hmm. Mm -hmm. This was about being heard. Okay. Chris? Um, so there's there you know there's been a lot of study about how to overcome stigma. The first thing, and again, uh, you know, one of our basic principles is the, the right to self direction and autonomy. So giving people the the power to decide if they want to disclose that information is the absolute first. Uh, when people do uh, go forward, we help them to understand the implications of that. Sometimes when we put ourselves out there, we don't understand that that's forever. So if I give a story on the internet, in ten years from now, perhaps. I don't want people knowing that information. I cannot retract it. Uh, so we're very, uh, we're very protective of our people. Uh, that being said, so we do go through and we train people on how to do that. We let them know the full implications of it. And it's, imp- it's the most important thing we can do. So there are three ways really to fight stigma. The first way is through education, right? All of the research says that that is a dismal failure for actually changing people's views. Uh, the second way is to protest, right? Protest is, is also not very good for changing views, but it is effective for changing policies. So we know that, at least in this case, the protests that were planned had some effect uh, because the 
actual decision to take down the data came Saturday morning at, at 12 a.m. Uh, after the protest at the mayor's house was announced. I would assume that that would have some effect. Uh, and the real way that we're going to fight stigma, though, is by creating spaces where people can safely talk about their stories. A huge part of that will be to make sure people don't think they'll be criminalized when they do so. So if I come out on air right now and saying I'm an IV drug user, uh, I obviously would could be targeted by law enforcement for admitting that. So it's pushed into the shadows through criminalization. So we need to create space where people can safely talk about it. Uh, and we need to create places where people can have direct one-on-one personal interactions. That is the most effective way to overcome stigma. Uh, We have reached out and begun the process of inviting the mayor to our, uh, it's our fourth annual overdose vigil. And it'll be August 28th at the courthouse, and we would love for him to come prior to the vigil mm-hmm. uh, and meet privately with the families who are already be there. And I think that's another part of it, is it can't be that they have to go to the farmer's market or that they have to call in, which they do, or that they have effort needs to be made to break down the structures again because it's so highly stigmatized and so pushed into the shadows it's not a regular issue right like water quality or something like that where you can just walk in and and open yourself up and talk about how important it is to you it's incredibly brave for these families to come forward and share Mm -hmm. Uh, i myself have have overdosed twice i've been in and out of jail uh, I've, you know, I had chaotic drug use in my life since teenage years, in and out of institutions, uh, and I'm I'm empowered to say that because I am self-employed through the IRA, so I don't have to worry about employment. Right? I'm not worried about being targeted because currently I'm abstaining from uh, illicit drugs, but the vast majority of people don't have uh, that privilege. So. It's important. Okay. Well, we're going to uh, go to the phone. We have a phone call from Ann. Ann? Hi. Hi, Ann. Um, hi. Uh, my question is whether any of the people involved in putting this data out there, either on the task force or on your tech team, had had HIPAA training that's Health Information Privacy Act. seems to me this information is covered by that act. And I would think that your tech team would have training in what is covered and what isn't and what they're allowed to put out there. So that's my question is, have they had HIPAA training? Are they going to get HIPAA training uh, to avoid repetitions that are similar in any way to this? Uh, That's my question, and that's all I want to know. All right, thanks. I'm not sure if we have anybody here who has an answer to that, but Beverly? So the the information that we had – is publicly available through the coroner's office. You have to, you know, ask for it through the coroner's office. And so uh, it's my understanding that HIPAA did not apply in this case. So um, so as far as having HIPAA training, uh, that's probably, I, I would say that we did not, or I didn't do it, but that the people that were in charge of it did not, but that HIPAA also did not apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would add to that, that while HIPAA didn't apply, and, and my understanding is that it didn't, um, there is a difference between something being legal and something being ethical. Right. For the Indiana State Department of Health, they suppress data that could possibly identify an individual. Mm-hmm. But legally, it, legally it was allowed. Legally it was allowed, but I want to also add that you, to get that information from the coroner, you can't just call the coroner and get that information. You have to um, put in a Freedom of Information Act, which is actually a, a task, right? So it's not – I guess I guess I think about, uh, you know, gossipy, nosy neighbors who know that John died and always suspected that it was an overdose, and then they can just easily access that information, Right. To find out. And I just think that's that's the types of uh, invasion of privacy I think about or people that might want to then use that information against um, people that they don't like. There's just so many instances where the information being that readily available uh, is problematic. So, yeah, I understand some of the implications. But I mean, to answer the caller about HIPAA, right. I, I just wanted to make sure that that there weren't any HIPAA violations. Correct. She knows that there weren't any HIPAA violations. Right. OK, we're going to have to take a short break. We're about halfway through our program today. We're talking about um, all the opioid issue, stigma of opioid use, and the the data release that uh, occurred recently by the city and the controversy that that fired up. So if you want to join us on the program, give us a call, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
from the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU, and our three guests who are with us here in the studio today. Chris Abert, who's the director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, Beverly Callender Anderson, the director of Community and Family Resources for the City of Bloomington, and Christy Thrasher, who's a certified harm reduction specialist, an naloxone trainer, coordinator of the CARES Harm Reduction Clinic at the Jackson County Health Department and a relative of an overdose victim. If you want to give us a call and join the program, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. News at indianapublicmedia.org is our web address where you can send us questions and Twitter. Uh, we're at Noon Edition. Sarah? I wanted to follow up, Chris, from something that you were talking in, in the effort to reduce stigma. You said the first thing was education, and it didn't work very well. But as someone on the outside, and we, we've done a lot of, Bob, just like you, we've done a lot of reporting on the opioid epidemic. And when we did a documentary a couple of years ago, the whole thing was like trying to show that this did affect everyone. Mm-hmm. So I guess just personally, from my experience as a journalist, it seems like the intent was was that right to show that it affects everybody? Um, so I, I don't want to be putting words in your mouth, but Beverly, I'm just wondering first if, if that's it, like to show that this is this is an issue that doesn't just affect this person on the west side or something. You're talking specifically about the website, yeah. Uh, well, and I think just, that um, not only the website, but I would even say some of the things that the opioid, the Monroe County Opioid Commission is involved in with the Opioid Summit. Uh, some of the other things it it is about education, and it is, and I think that a lot of us know that we've all been impacted, whether directly or whether it's a, a pers- close personal family member, a friend, a neighbor. Um, that many people have been impacted, you know, by whether it's opioid or other substances, um, and so I think the map did show that. Um, how we went about showing it probably could have been done a different way, but the map did show that, um, and that, and that this does not discriminate. It's not racial. It's not age. It's not uh, economic background. You know, it, it doesn't discriminate, and so that's that's why I continue to say, you know, that moving forward, you know, that we all have to move forward together. We have to find a way to work together, um, and unfortunately, there are going to be some missteps, you know, and and those people, you know, that know far more about this than I do, will call us and to question, you know, when we make those missteps and, and we'll do the same for them. Um, you know, but that's how we get better as a community. And how do how do you see that working together in terms of, you know, of, yeah, working towards education, even if yeah. like you said it's not that effective, which I would like you to elaborate on that a little bit, too. So, again, that's yeah. that's research that I did not do. It's research that a professor out of Northwestern University did. And, and it's not to say education is completely useless. It's just to say out of the three tools that we have okay. to fight stigma, it's the least effective. Right. And then, again, that protest is second. Uh, it's good at changing policy, but not at hearts. But the actual personal contact of someone within your same socioeconomic group is highly effective in reducing the stigma. So we need to create the spaces uh, where that can happen. And again, like I said, we need to make sure people are safe to be able to talk about that, which in such a highly criminalized um behavior is is often uh, nearly impossible. One of the things that happened, so again, in 2016, we sent uh, an email suggesting 51% 
uh, of people directly affected be involved. We're starting a campaign right now uh, to ask that municipalities dedicate 2% of their total budget uh, towards not just the opioid crisis, because we need to be honest, this is a methamphetamine mm-hmm. and opioid crisis. Yes. Uh, so we need to make sure that we have resources dedicated to this, particularly, though, the people in charge of that money, right, will be at least 51% of, of the people will have direct, right? And we also just gave uh, uh, Beverly 82 pages uh, from Open Societies Foundation of exactly what Nothing About Us Without Us looks like, and and particularly uh, in the realm of people who use drugs. So there's a lot of data and literature about that with mental illness and, and with other issues. Um, I, you know, I bring up uh, domestic violence a lot because not too many years ago, uh, we would have a domestic violence task force that wouldn't actually involve survivors of, of domestic violence. And today, that would be unheard of, right? If we had a task force about uh, young African-American males and didn't have any young African-American males on that task force, right, people would be outraged. And yet, we have all these task force uh, about people who use drugs and how to grip grip. Uh, come to grips with this, and and very rarely do we have anybody directly affected. One of the highlights, I think, of the of the commission that I'm on with the county uh, is that we made sure that over 50 percent of the people had direct experience with a family member uh, or personally. Um, so it's a, I think it's a good standard, and we can all meet that without much difficulty. You you can have because it's so ubiquitous. You can actually have people who've been affected who are doctors who are social workers, who are public health workers. So it's not a one or another, uh, right? We, we uh, not only have that lived experience, which makes us an expert in, in our own life and how, to, how we would like to be helped, uh, but also uh, in the fields in general. Mm-hmm. So I just want to ask you, Chris, don't you think that with the education protest and then creating the safe spaces, like it seems to me that they would all have to work together, like, mm-hmm. you know, just because different people are in different places, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I would think that all of that work, that education whereby itself may not be the thing to reduce stigma, but that, but that it is a component. Again, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. uh, we were just looking at the top three ways to mm-hmm. combat stigma. And unfortunately, we put a lot of, of uh, resources into education, mm-hmm. and it's not actually the most effective. So I I'm, I'm hope nobody mistakes me as saying we shouldn't do this anymore. We absolutely should, and education can work. It's, it's w- so much more effective, though, if the person giving the education mm-hmm. actually has that lived experience. Right. And typically what they, uh, what's, what they might do is drop that information at the end. Mm-hmm. So we also know that when people out themselves at the beginning of a conversation, right, we, ha- we all have implicit bias. And, and whether, ho- however woke we think we are, right, we are going to hold that. And again, 150 years of these uh, racialized drug policies telling us that people who use drugs are, are villains and dangerous are, are – they become part of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important uh, to have those people in front of you and be like, wait, this person isn't, you know, they're not a predator and they're not dangerous to me. It's, it's, it's my family. It's my community members and, and they're humans just like mm-hmm. me. And I think that narrative that Chris was just talking about allows people to disenfranchise our losses because the people that we lost were less than and they weren't worthy. And so... People say some incredibly ignorant things to people who have lost folks, like, aren't you glad you don't have to deal with that anymore? Mm-hmm. There's, it's just very obvious that people think that the people that we lost were not as worthy as other people. So that was a part of this, too, to help people to understand that we're going to honor our losses. Mm-hmm. You're making me think of our state legislature and even Jerome Adams. I think we have some folks who've been very, very close to the opioid epidemic. I think Jerome Adams' brother. brother. Yeah, and just how that then influences the mm-hmm. policies, the champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a Facebook question, and Beverly, this is this is for the city, so I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this or not, but I'm going to address it. Um, Nathaniel is saying, I feel that the city's had a lot of difficulty communicating with people adequately. Chris referenced a planned protest that was going to happen outside the mayor's house. The response from the mayor's office focused on the discomfort of having their home targeted but ignored that this was the very thing that the protest was about, people's homes and private lives being made public by the city. I wonder if there's a feeling in the mayor's office that they need to reflect on how they're responding to people. Um, I don't 
I don't work out of the mayor's office, so first of all, although I'm representing the city today, um, I would just say that every time we do something, it helps us reflect on, you know. So, again, like I said, we, we do things. Sometimes we make missteps. But there's always reflection. I mean, there's constant reflection on how we could have done it better, how we'll do it better the next time. So I can't speak directly to... Um, the protest and what the thinking was, you know, what the mayor thought. I, I won't do that. But, um, you know, but but I think we're constantly reflecting on um, how do you do it better the next time and, and, and how, you know, yeah. I want to follow up on what Chris um, was talking about, Chris and Christy both, actually, and talk about the, the opioid summit that occurred in September here in Bloomington, I assume. At least, Chris, you were there, right? And Beverly, you were probably there yes, for part of that. I don't know if Christy was there or not. Yes, I'll, I'll, I figured you were all through there. I mean, it, it seems to me I was there for part of the day, I wasn't, but we covered the whole thing through the newspaper. And it, it, it seems to me there were a lot of people who were on panels and who were speaking that day who – were people who had firsthand experience, right? So that is by design. We made sure that there right. was absolutely not a single panel that didn't have a person with lived experience on it. So right. it was and, very intentional. Yeah, well, and noticed. I think yeah, I did notice that, and I thought it was very. I mean, for me, it was very effective. It was very powerful, and I think a lot of people who came away from that it was very powerful to them. I guess part of my question would be, or or statement that I want reaction to, is that. You know, that was a great experience for the 600 people or so who were exposed to it. But I, my guess is that probably 580 of those people were already kind of, you know, true believers, you know. Um, so how do you expand that? How do you, you know, how do you reach more people? I don't know. That, that's a, sure. it's a tough question. But yeah. I think we just keep telling our stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if everyone else wants us to keep telling our stories – then I think that, you know, we shouldn't, we, you need to reduce the amount of stigma that you're throwing. It makes people uncomfortable. So people's defense mechanisms come up. This isn't something we traditionally talk about openly, right? So I think that other people putting their discomfort aside and being willing to just sit with our stories is really important. And, you know, stigma is, is about power. So one of the things would be to empower people, obviously, to fight back against that stigma. Um, but it's also socially constructed. And I think that's important in the sense that, uh, I'll say it one more time, 150 years of racialized drug policy have brought us to this point, right? This isn't the pharmaceutical companies, though they exacerbated it. This has been a long-standing problem within other communities, African-American, indigenous, and Latino. So it's really important to fund Right. It's if we have billions of dollars that have been put into this narrative of uh, villainizing drug users and, and treating them as others, we need to match that money. One of the one of the highlights, I think, is and it's the opposite that happened. But if we look at what happened with tobacco. Right. So for years, you're inundated with you've come a long way, baby, or you're the Marlboro man or all these positive images of smokers. Uh, we sued the pharmaceutical or the, the tobacco companies. And then we use that money to to have images of, you know, infected lungs and, and just terrible scenes of the actual truth about what happens when you smoke. So we could do that uh, with drug use, not to show the terrible effects that had no effect. Right. We know the war on drugs and the just say no campaigns failed. Um, but but use that money to show that this is your neighbor, that these people are human beings, that people who overdosed, they had calendars just like you and I, and they did not show up for those things that they wanted to show up for the next day, right, to really, like, contextualize it. But we absolutely have to have the funding to be able to get that message out there uh, and, and, again, to create that space. Part of what we were talking about with that 2% campaign uh, is is to actually allocate that funding and allow the people who are affected to decide what that messaging will be, which, again, is important because oftentimes you think that messaging is like a coffin. This is what happens when you do heroin. And, and that's not actually what happens when you do heroin. That's what happens when you're pushed into the shadows, when, as the data showed, when you're alone, when you're at home, mm-hmm. uh, when you're in, a, in, a, in the bathroom of a downtown business, right? And, and that's why you die from heroin, Right. Not because you used it. It's because you were pushed into a place where you couldn't talk about it, where you couldn't reach out for help. 
uh, and, and where, again, that loneliness is something that's almost intangible and the only people that have experienced it can understand. Mm-hmm. If you want to join us today and talk to our panelists, we have about 10 or 12 minutes to go. So 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348, or you can send your message to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Um, so, Christy, I wanted you to talk about the concept of uh, you're a certified harm reduction specialist. And for you know, some of our listeners out there might not really understand the whole concept of harm reduction. Can you talk about that? Harm reduction is acceptance. It's accepting that people are using drugs as opposed to like waging some campaign where we're going to have drug-free communities, which is an unrealistic goal and is pitting one part of the community against another. If we're going to eradicate drug users, like it's a scourge. I think our language is really important. Um, Mayor Hamilton referred to it as a scourge. Well, who's bringing the scourge, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that's a piece that everybody can do is to educate themselves about how important our language is and what words we're choosing. Michael Botticelli, when he was the White House Office of Policy on Drugs in the Obama administration, um, commissioned studies about how important language usage is. And it was with professionals. And even with professionals, when they had this set of language and this set of language, the recommendations were harsher. They were less likely to recommend treatment for somebody if they were a junkie as opposed to a person with a substance use disorder, for example. Um, we have a humanizing campaign here in Indiana. It's Know the OFACs. And if anybody was interested, they could get on the website and look up more information about how language is stigmatizing. Um, Jackie Daniels with the Indiana Center for Recovery did a recovery messaging training. That She's a trainer for that. If people were interested in learning more about how important it is the way that we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. So... I have to follow, though. Is harm reduction all about language? It's not. Harm reduction is really just about meeting people where they're at, accepting where they're at, um, providing safe spaces, Mm -hmm. asking people what they need, Mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking, I'm an expert and I can dictate to you what you need. And if you don't follow what I've just told you you need, then I can punish you for it. Mm -hmm. That's not really helpful. This is the, like, polar opposite. It's a safe place for families Harm reduction isn't just for people with drug use. It's a safe place for their families. When we opened the harm reduction clinic in Jackson Counties, families came. Mm-hmm. Family members came. Moms who have lost their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, People who have loved ones who are actively struggling. They were the first people who came in the door and formed the core of our organization. Okay. Thank you. Chris, how do you think things have changed since you know the state started allowing needle exchanges a couple of years ago. Have have you noticed a change in how people are communicating about addiction? And Yeah, so I would say it goes back uh, before that. And again, it's uh, the narrative has changed. And the narrative now is that white posterity is at risk because of this. Uh, and that's been the driver, I think, for the change in policies and the change in the language. So again, it's important to always frame it in, in that context. Um, but it's it's absolutely changed. But uh, I wish it would have changed because of the 30 years of data and research that we had to show that these programs are effective. They are, in fact, more effective than any other programs uh, that, that uh, yeah, they're very, very effective. And there's no debate about that. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is that the debate changed because, uh, in a large part, because of Scott County and because of the largest HIV outbreak uh, in the history of the United States, uh, you know, more people in that town with HIV per capita than South uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Right. So it, it is truly like uh, epidemic proportions of disaster that hit. And I, I think a lot of the legislators that were suddenly on board with harm reduction uh, were perhaps moved more by financial repercussions of that happening again. Uh, and then as we saw, you know, someone as conservative and well-known as, as Mike Pence saying that he supported these, uh, though reluctantly, they then opened the door for West Virginia, for North Carolina, for Kentucky, right, to, to institute their own programs. Uh, so it really was, unfortunately, the catalyst was tragedy. 
uh, and and perhaps the catalyst for meaningful involvement of people who use drugs in, in future policies by the city will also come out of what we consider this tragedy of these names and addresses being put up. Mm-hmm. Um, I just – that's unfortunately, that's the way it's playing out. I, again, we would love for it to be all based on data uh, because we have the, the graphs and the charts to show that what we're doing is effective and, and, and compassionate. If you could just ex- – uh, follow up on that just a little bit and go a little deeper about how do you measure effectiveness? Sure. So uh, there are a few things. Um, Some of the outcomes for a syringe service program, um, people are five times more likely to seek treatment if there is a syringe service program uh, operational where they live. And the reason for that is because we are able to meet people where they are, like Christy said, and you can build that rapport and then people Again, we create that safe space where people can be honest, and which is what we've been talking about. You know, it's like the motif throughout this conversation. Build that safe space where people can have their voices heard. Um, there's an 80% reduction in uh, viral transmission of disease like hepatitis C and HIV. And that's, that's if it's coupled with... Um, MAT, so buprenorphine, suboxone, methadone options. We're, we're finally getting all of those. Uh, my understanding is just yesterday there was a variance granted for another buprenorphine clinic to come into Bloomington, and we're really happy with that decision uh, because that was not necessarily what we thought was going to happen a few weeks ago when we were talking about the moratorium. Um, we know that... Um, So on and on and on with the reduction of disease. I think, though, the most important thing that we offer as a syringe service program, and this is more of a qualitative than a quantitative, uh, is the real space for connection, right? So people, again, can come in. They can tell us exactly what's going on in our lives, which allows us to meet their needs uh, where they are, where they can't do that other places. But we actually give them respite from an otherwise pretty hostile world. One only needs to look at the newspaper uh, when we talk about people who use drugs uh, in the comment section. I can't think of another. I was trying the other day to think of another population that's treated that badly publicly. And the only thing I could think of was ISIS. Right. And it immediately hit me. Well, that's because of war on drugs rhetoric. So we've used this idea like that. We have this war on drugs, which translates into being a war on drug users. Uh, and, I, and I think that's why there's similar treatment between something as obviously as dangerous and uh, as ISIS, right, and, and our fellow community members. We have a couple comments from Facebook. I want to get into the discussion here. From Carrie is saying, what are some ways or planned opportunities moving forward the city has in increasing engagement, illicit input, and or have representation in decision-making surrounding substance misuse? Can you speak to that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so first of all, again, I want to go back to the county health department because the city is not in charge of health. I mean, that that is the role of the county health department. And so we work as partners with the health department, especially in things that, that reach epidemic proportions. And this may not be technically an epidemic, but uh, it's, it's very serious. And so we do work in concert with them. Um, as far as things that we do, you know, again, implementing those safety, civility, and justice um, task force recommendations, we wor- we're working along with the county. We're working with uh, nonprofits. One of the things we just did um, was to provide a training, um, mental health and substance abuse 101, for about 160 residents in the city. Uh, we work with Centerstone in order to do that, and that came out of the, the task force recommendations to get people trained who are encountering individuals on a daily basis of, you know, where they can get services, how to approach them, how not to approach them, language. You know, we talked a lot about language. Um, and so that's one of the things the city can do. So, again, the city is working to enhance what other agencies are doing. Um, moving forward, you know, certainly Chris and I work together. Now that I know Christy, I'm sure I'll be calling her, um, giving the names, you know, to the mayor. As we come up with, with new ideas or different ideas that we're doing, we we just need to lean on one another. So that's that's what we'll be doing. Mm-hmm. Um Ryan from Facebook, I think this is this is more of a comment, but Chris, I would be curious your reaction. Um, if you want to help ease opioid overdoses, if you thought about legalizing cannabis, it seems odd we're having this discussion in 2018. 
so so just really quickly, like if we really want this to stop, then we'll institute social change, such as was seen in Portugal, right? We are not in Portugal, and we're not going to get to Portugal anytime. So I guess the question is, what are the steps between Indiana and Portugal, right? I honestly don't have any. Um, I, I don't have any faith that that uh, recreational or medicinal marijuana will be legalized anytime soon, particularly with such a what's a nice word, Attorney General Curtis Hill, um, with someone like him uh, in a position of power in the state, someone who will fight something as innocuous as CBD. Uh, so while we know that there is data to support the fact that in states where uh, marijuana is recreationally and, and medicinally available, they have a lower overdose rates, um, I, I just I wish I had hope that that would happen in Indiana. Perhaps there will be a tragedy Right, that will uh, make people see the light. Uh, the only thing I could think that would happen would be some type of economic tragedy where people would see the, the economic benefits of, of legalization and regulation that other states have, have mm-hmm. demonstrated for sure. Last minute of the program, one final takeaway from each of you. Christy, a takeaway, something you hope that listeners will really remember from this program. Um. Really, I think that um, I think that it's important for all of us to, if we want to be heard, then we have to stand up. And so, I hope that people will continue to push. And our job isn't to make our elected officials comfortable. That's not our job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there are a lot of opportunities coming up. If you go to Indiana Recovery Alliance on Facebook or to our website, we have naloxone training coming coming up, uh, a couple of them, the overdose vigil, uh, the summit comes up in September 18th and 19th. So there are a wide variety of ways to get involved, uh, and we look forward to meeting people so they can actually, when they come to the IRA, they will meet people who are using drugs and who have used drugs. So if you want to meet us, come come hang out with us. Last word. So I will say over the years, I've learned so much from Chris. Um, so um, I would just encourage what both Christy and Chris have said, you know, is to get involved, to 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 use your voice, um, to stand up, you know, and let us know what, what okay. you know, we're doing wrong if we're doing something wrong. And let us know what we're doing right when we're doing something right. Thank you, Beverly Callender Anderson, Christy Thrasher, and Chris Abert. For producer Patrick Munger, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.